Hi everybody, this is John Mitchell from Frost, Doreen, a lonely robot, far too many bands, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hey everyone, welcome to Michael's Record Collection, the podcast that talks about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. This is episode number 75, and for this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with songwriter, musician, and producer John Mitchell. Many know John as the guitarist for the British progressive rock band Arena, or from his work with Frost, It Bites, and Kino. For the last several years, he's been putting out top-quality solo albums under the name Lonely Robot. There's a new Lonely Robot album dropping August 26th called A Model Life. And it's John's most personal and introspective album to date. But through it all, he retains his usual pop sensibilities. I love it. I think you'll love it too. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to remind you, you can follow me on social at Mike's Records on Twitter and at Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Visit michaelsrecordcollection.com where you'll find links where you can sign up for my free newsletter and visit my Patreon where you can support this independent podcast and newsletter for as little as $2 per month, simply find the right level for you. All those links are at michaelsrecordcollection.com. You can also email me at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com if you want to give me some feedback, ask a question, or just say hello. All right, let's get to that interview with John Mitchell. Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited to have with me today John Mitchell. John, thank you for your time today. Uh, thank, thank you for inviting me, Michael. Glad to be here. You've got a new album out under the Lonely Robot moniker coming out on August 26th on Inside Out Music called Model Life. Can't wait to get into that with you and some various other points throughout your career. But I'd like to start by asking you if you can remember your first favorite record. Yeah, my first favorite record was an easy one. I, mean, I, I tell you why. Um, it was it was it was a sad time in 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 my life because it was shortly after my dad died when I was about twelve years old. But for some reason, my sister insisted on playing uh, "Move Closer" by Phyllis Nelson about six hundred times. Uh, she would play it, you know, like when you had that function on on, on vinyl where you could uh, you could start like an auto repeat thing on vinyl. Mm-hmm. So she played this again and again and again and again, and I was like, "Please stop playing that album." Uh, sorry, that that single. <laughs> and one day she did stop playing that single, thank goodness. And she started playing uh, exactly this. Literally within days of stopping playing that, she started playing "Hunting High and Low" by Aha, um, which okay. is obviously a pop album. You probably expected me to say something like Tarkus or something, didn't you? <laughs> no, no. I, I think you have tremendous it. pop sensibilities. Well, that's it. That's kind of where I come from, you know, primarily. So yeah, I did. Uh, I, I I absolutely fell in love with that record. To, to this day, I you know I still listen to it um, regularly, and I, I think it's a work of genius because it's just it's it, it, yeah. I mean, ostensibly they were they were like pinups, weren't they? Those guys are handsome young guys, and mm-hmm. uh, ladies loved them. But if you actually listen to it, there's a lot more sort of darkness going on. There's a lot of bleakness about that record. Some of the lyrics are very bleak, and the orchestration is very epic. It's kind of like it's it's anything but just a pop album. You know, it's it. Mm-hmm. They, they, and of course, later on in later on in their career, you got to see what they were really about, you know. And they were just, you know, hiding under the pop, hiding their talent under pop bushels, as it were. So yeah. that's my cat. Shh. <laughs> we're on TV. Shh. <laughs> All right. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had dogs on the show, but never. This is my first cat, I think. He's a ragdoll cat. And he, they they are they're, they're known for being very needy, and they they call them dog cats. Uh, because primarily you can throw things and they'll go and fetch them and you can take them for walks. Oh, nice. So it's kind of like a, a dog, but without uh, without pooping everywhere, you know. So. <laughs> That's great. You have done a lot of stuff throughout your career. And, uh, I mean, basically right from the beginning, you have done a lot of projects. You've been in a lot of bands. And I just wondered, are you one of those people who just can't sit still? You're always creating, you're always working? No, I mean I'm actually quite lazy. It's just that <laughs> I'm. Uh, I think you know, considering I'm like 49 years old now, and I've been doing music, you know, I suppose semi-professionally or whatever since I was about 23. 
it's not really that much really it's just you know one album a year or you know sometimes i've you know i've played on other people's albums actually the, the, you know to be honest with you the, the the process of writing my own music has really only been since about you know 2015 um before that i've always been in bands and writing with other people you know so like it bites was you know largely written by myself and john beck and Kino was largely myself, John Beck, and myself and Peter Alvis and John Beck, and we, you know, th that. So this is, you know, only since I've been doing Lonely Robot have I kind of been pushing myself to do. Um, I just like the process of, well, more than anything, it helps pay the bills. Uh, you know, doing an album a year, uh, unless you reach sort of U uh, two levels of majesty, then you kind of have to, uh, you know, you have to to uh, find as a, as a full time musician, I have to find ways to sort of supplement my income. Mm -hmm. So, out of necessity, is born. What's the word? Uh, uh, <laughs> I can't think what the word I'm looking for. Out of necessity, is born far too much creativity. I suppose. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Why lonely robot as a moniker? Why not go under the John Mitchell name? Uh, well, somebody actually read, I read a, re a review recently, and somebody said uh, John Mitchell's not a very exciting name, and I'm thinking. <laughs> Well, it's only uh, one letter away from Joni Mitchell. I'm, I'm sure she'll have words with you about that. Um, uh, no, it's not a particularly exciting name. Uh, it was basically because uh, Thomas at the label said, uh, um, I'm not going to do my Thomas impersonation because it always ends up sounding like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But he did say something along the lines of, he doesn't know why, but apparently uh, convincing people that your band, as it were, your, your, your project is a band, seems to sell better than like a solo artist as it were I, he says that as a general rule of thumb people seem to tend to buy into the notion of a band than, than a, you know as, which i don't know necessarily is true you know mm -hmm. uh, i think phil collins probably sold quite a lot of records <laughs> as well as genesis you know so mm -hmm. i don't know the figures um maybe i'm wrong about that but certainly um cat honestly <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go and grab him in a minute I, I'd say that uh, anyway. I just thought Lonely um, and he said, "I said, well, okay, well, fine, we'll, we'll call it something then." And I thought Lonely Robot was quite an astute name for it, really, because uh, given the nature of the way that I write music, and some people have described me as slightly autistic, though, like, in, in my, and I don't mean to make a light of that because you know I have been diagnosed slightly on the autistic spectrum, but you know there is a sort of sense of you know when I make a record. I get up at seven in the morning and I work until about eleven o'clock at night, then go to bed and get up and do it all again and do it all again. And it is kind of like, like a like a sort of music factory for mm. about three or four weeks. So uh, I like the idea of robot, and uh, you know I do that all by myself. Hence lonely. So that's why I quite liked it. You know. Okay, you've got a cat going on, and I've got a, a thunderstorm. So we have uh, we have a lot of uh, background yeah, noise. I, you can't tell your thunderstorm to go away though. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've tried that. It doesn't work here in Florida. Uh, so you joined Arena uh, after the Pride album, did seven studio albums uh, so far with them, joined in 97. got a new album coming out this year the theory of molecular inheritance due out in late october with pre-orders shipping worldwide in september can you give us any hints on what arena fans uh, can expect with that album um well damien wilson for stars they can expect him uh, mm -hmm. he's he's uh he's new to the fold i've got I, i've got good vibes about this album mainly because one of the things i always think lets arena albums down is is, is appalling album covers <laughs> 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 and uh, I, I think anybody in arena would probably agree with me on that you know uh, we, we've had some real real stinkers 
when it comes to album covers. Um, but this time we've got David Wyatt involved again, who did Contagion and he did uh, Pepper's Ghost. And of course, before that, we did have two uh, two um, album covers by Hugh Syme, who, as you know, does used to do Rush and Megadeth mm-hmm. and people like that. All I can tell you is that um, with this album, yeah, it's a very good album cover. So that's a good start because, frankly, you only have to go back like to the last album or the album before that. And I'm going, these are terrible, you know. <laughs> I mean, I know progressive rock is famous for terrible album covers, like, you know, appallingly, like, you know, a, a wizard on a cliff holding a ball or whatever. I don't know. But this, I'm, I'm, I think this album, anyway, aside from that, musically, I think it's very strong. And I think that we spend a lot longer doing it than we have done in, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think just, I, and, and obviously I produced and mixed it. So it's going to sound expensive. And uh, yeah, and we've done all sorts of, uh, we've done like a, a little booklet with this one so that you can see the artwork in its full, full, full glory mm-hmm. and you know, the lyrics. And so, yeah, I just really, I think it's a really, um, I think it's the strongest thing we've done in, you know, I mean, I, there are arena albums I'm, I'm fond of, like Contagion, I'm very fond of, although that was a good album. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, I quite liked Immortal, and I quite liked The Visitor, although I didn't really like The Visitor because I didn't really like Paul Wrightson singing, but, you know, what do I know? Okay. Um, uh, I probably shouldn't say that. Loud, but. <laughs> it's Hey, it's fair enough. It's uh, Honesty's good. But uh, I, I had Clive Nolan on the show back on, way back in episode 19, and he said something interesting about when I asked him about, does he still get excited playing, you know, Jericho, for example, or something like that? And he said that he... He still loves playing those songs live. What he doesn't love is rehearsing them. And I wondered how you felt about playing songs like A Crack in the Ice or The Hanging Tree all these years later. I, I, I like, I mean, there's some songs I really don't enjoy playing live. Um, I really don't enjoy playing The Butterfly Man because it's so slow and dreary. And for some reason, people like that song. And I, I don't like that song. Uh, I, you said honesty is the best policy. So mm-hmm. here we go. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't like I'm, I, I always, I really liked Jericho. I thought it was, you know, I mean, I like the first half of it. I, yeah, Hanging Tree. You, I always enjoyed playing that one. I think, I think anything that's, you know, melodically strong. I mean, there are certain songs that, that appeared in the set list that we were, we've been told we're going to be playing when we go on tour in October. And I said, no, we're not playing that. That's just terrible. <laughs> so uh you know I, I i do have some say in the band you know having having i mean i'm due a, i'm pretty sure i'm due a gold watch right about now <laughs> for services rendered yeah uh, yeah I, I don't i don't there are some i mean i you know i still i mean yeah cracking the ice all the stuff off of the business is great fun to play i mean it's actually the, the a lot of the stuff that we we wrote later on which i'm not so fond of i think it's like you know as a band I think you know Clive is uh, again is just you know he's he's got his own thing going on with his musicals and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I think he's you know it's I think perhaps what I like about this new album so much is the fact that we have actually genuinely all focused on it 100 percent you know, and it, it it really really sounds strong. I think it's the best album we've done. I mean I I really like Contagion, and I think it's certainly the best album we've done since Contagion. Um, I don't. And I'm not just saying that. I really do think that um, there's some really really beautiful songs on there. And yeah, I think the artwork's strong. I mean, yeah, I, I'm actually excited about this one. Whereas, you know, it's difficult when you've been in a band for such a long time, you can get quite jaded and go, do we really have to do that? And so, yeah, I think I, I, I'd actually, um, and it's, it's good having Damien because, you know, he's a good energy, you know, I'm not saying that Paul wasn't a good energy, but it was quite clear towards the end of Paul's time in arena. That he didn't really want to be in arena. He just didn't have the, hard to tell us you know so mm-hmm. okay yeah let's uh go back to one of your your many bands projects whatever you want to call it that uh maybe is, is a little lesser known and that's the urbane you, you put out two albums 1999's neon two, 2003's glitter is it any Oh, 
Fantastic uh, songs on the poppy side, like uh, Aeroplanes, Loop, Parachute. And there's a great cover of Cindy Lauper's Time After Time on Glitter. Tell me a little bit about the Urbane, the rise and fall of the Urbane. Very quick rise, very quick fall. Well, I mean, you, yeah, I tell you what, I wouldn't change any of that for the world. I mean, I did it because at the time, you know, I, I, I it's funny. I mean, I, I always grew up liking certain progressive rock bands. But, you know, you've got to understand at the time I was like 23 years old or whatever. And I was really into like alternative rock and I really wanted to do an alternative rock band. And so, you know, that was the thing that I was into at the time. I really liked, um, you know, like the Goo Goo Dolls and I really liked um, uh, the Lemonheads. And really, I remember going on some radio show with Arena and some guy asking me what music I liked. And it was a progressive rock radio show. And I, I said, oh, I actually quite like the Lemonheads. And he was German, which meant that he, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he was quite forthright. <laughs> <laughs> and he said what that primitive music and I thought, oh yeah primitive music well it is primitive music but you know the police is primitive music and i happen to like primitive music you know and i happen to not like overly technical progressive rock music so you know i always find it odd when i always speak to fans of prog rock or whatever and they you know they're surprised that i, I don't spend my entire time listening to progressive rock but then you wouldn't would you Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I, I'm. Well, maybe you would. I mean, I'm. I think you know. I'm. I'm a fan of many different genres of music. Um, you know, I like country pop. I like um, all manner of things, really. Um, and you know, I think progressive rock suits a certain mood, doesn't it? When you're in a certain mood, I might stick on the Wall by Pink Floyd if I'm feeling a bit maudlin. But you know, I'm not going to listen to that all day long. And you know, sometimes you want cheering up with a bit of Cindy Lauper or whatever. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I'd find it very constricted to only like one genre of music. I think that would be an odd thing. But, you know, some people do just like listening to progressive rock all day long, I suppose. And that's kudos to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we, all, we all have our, our favorites that we gravitate toward. But it's... Yeah, yeah. going back to your question about the Urbane, though. Well, I did this thing and I released it. And, it, you know, and it, it, it sold a couple of thousand units. And we were quite happy with that. And... And then Inside Out decided, well, Thomas really liked it, Inside Out, and this was the first time I'd ever worked with Thomas. And we did the second album, Glitter, which was a, a bit more polished than the first one. Time after, sometimes you picture me I'm walking too far ahead You're calling to me I can hear what you said You say I think this is just as I was moving over to digital recording. And so it started sounding a bit, you know, the first one was done on my knackered old Tascam MSR24. So it sounded, and it was all done, you know, it's all, it's, 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 it sounds kind of rough and ready now, you know, but uh, anyway, uh, the, the good thing about that second one was when we released it, we went on tour with King's X. So that was brilliant. And we, we released time after time. And I think it was a, made a tiny dent in, in, in the single charts in Germany at the time. Yeah, it's just a good experience, and I love those Kings. I, Kings X, one of my favorite bands. Jellyfish, Kings X, mm-hmm. they were like two of my favorite bands when I was uh, was growing up. And so to go on tour with Kings X, and, and they were such lovely people, you know, um, really sweet people, and really really kind to us, which I will never forget. And yeah. uh, that was a great experience. But then after that, you know, it became clear, well, it came clear to Thomas that actually that hadn't sold brilliantly. He wanted it to expect it to sell a lot. He would try to branch out and try and sell records in a different field. And mm-hmm. it didn't go well, you know, because uh, Inside Out is a progressive rock label, selling to progressive rock fans. So, yeah. So the next thing he said, well, I like what you do, but I think what you need to do is like a, like that, but a bit more progressive. So that's how Kino came about, you know. 
<laughs> and there's your there's your impersonation. <laughs> Stop shooting the innocent people down the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I got to see you at Rosfest with Arena. I also got to see you with Kino, and uh, got the little autographed uh, picture there. Little that, yeah, um, on that thing. Kino come uh, came out with a picture in uh, 2005. And uh, not till 2018 for Radio Voltaire. Picture was my album of the year in 2005. And you just explained how you guys kind of, how you, how you, how Kino came about. How did you guys as musicians, did you already know each other or how did you find each other? Well, that's why it's simple. I always wanted to play with, um, be like, do some project with John Beck. And I'd been, uh, you know, we were going to Japan with John Wetton around that time or just before we did Kino. 2003 maybe and John Wetton at the time I think Martin Orford didn't want to play with John Wetton anymore I think you know I, I, if be perfectly honest with you John this was right at the height of John's drinking and it, it could be quite fractious at mm -hmm. times quite stressful and Martin I think just didn't want to just you know he'd been in the band a long time and he just you know I think he you know he'd, he'd reached the end of his tether and obviously famously John later in his life towards the end of his life was sober for 10 years and, and, and a completely, you know, and I, I, you know, I understand all that. I grew up with an alcoholic father, so I'm fully aware of the patterns, behavioral patterns that you encounter. And yeah, it is stressful at times. You don't know whether or not you're going to go on stage with somebody who's completely incapable of playing or, or not, you know? Um, so anyway, I digress. Um, and we're looking for a keyboard player and I said, why don't we get John Beck? And of course, John Wetton has the cachet of just calling up John Beck and saying, do you want to play and come to Japan with me? And he did, and he was free. And so we went to Japan and we became good friends, fast friends, mm -hmm. we came back from Japan and um, yeah. Uh, and I suggested, do you want to do this thing with me, this, this thing, Kino? And he said, yes. And then I didn't hear from him for a year and then eventually he got back in touch. Uh, and I was in, that was the, the crazy world of John Beck, uh, the, uh, He's like Lord Lucan or uh, Elvis has left the building <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he's, he's you know, he's um, he's a law unto himself. So everybody, and then it became word got out that I was doing this thing with, with John Beck and um, this super group, although obviously I wasn't the super part of the group. <laughs> I was the unknown quantity. And yeah, um, it turns out that John, um, Chris Maitland also loved John Beck and always wanted to play with John Beck. And it turns out Pete Travis always wanted to play with John Beck. So John Beck was the lightning rod of that whole thing. You know, if it hadn't been for John Beck, I very much doubt it would have happened. Okay. Nobody well, wanted to play with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably do now. What What was the, um, the the long delay between the two albums? What Was that just about availability? No, I just didn't want to do another one. After okay. The first. I just didn't want to do another one. I was like so disheartened by it. You know, we did it. And of course, I didn't realize that I was very naive about lots of things. And I wanted it to be like a proper band. But before we even finished the album, Chris Maitland announced that, he, you know, he wouldn't be able to commit to it after all, because he was going to go off on tour with was it either Rock of Ages or We Will Rock You or Mamma Mia. I can't remember which one I got. It's one of those three things he, he wanted to, uh, you know, because he'd been in Porcupine Tree all that time and mm -hmm. really not earned very much money and he wanted a steady income. So I understand his reasoning for wanting to go on tour with a touring you know, a, a West End production. And I'm like, yeah, fine, totally. But already that was like, for me, my dream lineup had just evaporated, you know, like yeah. that. And then of course we got, uh, Bertie was still on TV. Shh, <laughs> hang on. All right, there he is. Oh, there you go. Say hello to everyone, Bertie. <laughs> 
Yeah. Now, now, now you're up. Now, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? You just got to stay here and be pampered. So yeah, and then um, uh, what happened? Oh yeah, and then we got Bob Dalton in. That was John Beck's idea. We had a drummer called Steve Hughes briefly. He was in Big Big Train. Um, I don't think John Beck particularly thought he was right for it. It's, you know, he was a bit. Um, his timekeeping was a tad. Well, I I think he thought it was a tad erratic. Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't want to speak ill of the guy. I really like Steve. He's a nice guy. But I, I don't think, you know, I think John wanted a lot more solid drummer, like, you know, somebody like simplistic, like like Bob Dalton. So we, we got Bob Dalton and we went on tour a couple of times with Bob Dalton. And uh, yeah, and then we started having to fill out the set with additional material from the back catalogues of It Bites and Marillion, you know, so that we had a, a, a we could do an entire set. Because we only had, we only had the one album. So if you want to play for an hour and a half, you'd have to start playing Marillion songs and Hit Bite songs. Yeah. And obviously, uh, we played a couple of Hit Bite songs, and I think a light bulb went off in Bob Dalton's head and said, well, this week, well, this sounds like Hit Bites. I'm like, well, yeah, but Keno did sound a bit like Hit Bites, I suppose. So then once we came off tour, we finished doing that. And, and the other thing was Pete was always busy with Marillion, and I was like, Ugh, okay, this isn't really going to work the way I planned it. I wanted it to be a bit more. And of course, it's obvious, you know, Pete's going to put Marillion first because that's his day job, you know, that's that's mm -hmm. his bread and butter. And of course, what was I thinking? Why would he expect it to be any different? Um, but, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a lovely, it was, a, it was um, yeah, it was a fun whilst it lasted. But when that came to an end, I was quite disheartened about it because I put so much, you know, TLC in, into it. Um, and uh, sorry, he's got a little mini dreadlock there, just grooming the cat as we go. Um <laughs> Yeah, then we just went and did it bites. We turned that into it bites, and then we did two albums with that, and then I got disheartened with that as well. And I came to the conclusion I don't really like being in bands because you have to depend <laughs> on other people, you know. Yeah, especially when they have other responsibilities as well. Yeah, totally. And it's always there's a you know the thing is with a band and as with all the best will in the world, the band shouldn't be a democracy. The the, the ship needs a captain, and there's always somebody making more effort than the next person. You know, there's always. An imbalance with with like within Frost, it's, it's Jem Godfrey's band. You know, it is Jem God. Whatever he says goes because it's his band. That's not to say that I don't have some sort of creative input in in the process, but ultimately the buck stops with Jem, and yeah. I'm fine with that. But you know, in a band where I'm supposed to be the guy writing the music, and that's quite a big part of it, I I, I kind of feel that I don't like slackers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You talked about Frost, so why don't we talk about Frost now? You started this with this one. Oh, not that old ago. thing. This God. old thing. I love this thing. I love that. I know, one. but that was such a long time ago. I know. So was this one now. This yeah, one everyone time. still goes on about them. Like it, that's progressive rock for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about that if you want. Yeah. So how did you and Jem cross paths? Uh, we we he he heard the Kuna record. He went out. He wanted to write a progressive rock record, and he wanted to do that because he spent a lot of time writing pop music for people you know mm -hmm. okay and he kind of as a reaction to that you know where it's very constrictive he wanted to he thought in his you know as a hobby he wanted to have a go at, you know writing a progressive rock record so he went out and he bought 10 contemporary progressive rock records and he said he hated all of them except one which was the kino one and he um he got in touch with me uh, i think he sent me an email he managed to track me down because it was very easy to find me at the time it still is um <laughs> Uh, and he sent me, he sent me, um, yeah, as I say, he sent me, uh, an email saying, do you want to play on my album? I thought, oh yeah, here we go. This is going to be some guy in his bedroom with an eight track recorder or something. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of, I said, yeah, well, okay, what are you going to pay me? Typical breadhead, obviously. And I went down to his place and I walked into his studio and they're like Ivan Novello's everywhere and gold discs. And I'm like, John Mitchell, I think you may well have misjudged this situation. <laughs> <laughs> So we became fast friends, and yeah, and then we, you know, I helped him put the first incarnation of Frost together, which was me, him, Andy Edwards, and John Jowett.
that lasted for a short period of time. I think, yeah, and then we, yeah, and then Andy didn't want to go on tour anymore, and I think there was a bit of friction between John and Jem, so that ended. And then, you know, then we have what we call the classic Frost lineup, which is Nathan King and Craig Blundell and me and Jem. Yeah. So, all together. It, I think it struck a lot of people how similar Jem's voice sounds to yours. Yeah, in a way. I mean, he's he, uh, my he's um, yeah. I suppose it does. That's just the way he produces the voice, though. I mean, you know, view to yeah. He's he's. I suppose I've got a slightly deeper, more resonant voice than him. Uh, we've both got about the same vocal range, pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, and yeah, we both. Uh, you know. I think I'm probably a bit more gravelly than he is, but you know, that's, I can't help that. Unfortunately, (laughs) the human chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about it bites a little bit. This was, uh, this was one of my favorite albums of 2008. Oh no, not that old thing. That old thing right there. That's right. And this was, um, you know, as you said, it was a natural progression from the keynote to the, to the, it bites. I would run to a home in my heart and a dream on my sleeve. I figured a moment and stared into water. Was there any concern on your part about winning over longtime fans of the band, taking over for Francis? Uh, you know, how did you deal yeah. with that? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, and there was a lot of people that weren't on board with it and thought, you know, that um, some people just love Francis. You know, he's, he's, he's got him by the throat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, literally. No, um, he's, you know, he's a very charismatic guy. I've kind of got to know him over the years. We get on okay. Yeah, but he is very, you know, he, you know, he dominates a room. He's an alpha male and uh, that's the way of it. And I'm, I'm very much not that, well, I'm not saying, you know, I, I, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm just, a, you know, I'm, I suppose I'm a little bit, I'm not as tall as he is, you know, I'm, I'm not <laughs> as all encompassing as he is, but you know, I have my place in the world and you know, a lot of people love those two albums. So yeah, I do remember I did the, the first gig I did and there's a couple of people came down from Scotland and we played at Carnegie Hall in Workington. And I remember a couple of guys, Scottish guys, like literally walked out within the first song. And I just thought, well, fuck it, whatever, you know, and excuse my French. Well, whatever. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I, yeah, you can't care about these things really. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the mistake is to look, go looking for trouble. Don't look on internet forums. Don't look, because you're always going to find some naysayer. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a world where it's more important to have an opinion than not have an opinion. So, and as many in progressive rock being, you know, um, an absolute uh, a sort of, and you know, a classic example of a genre where people do feel the need to express those opinions. Yeah. Vehemently. Yeah, it's important for your opinion to be correct, also, <laughs> in this day and age. Well, I don't know. I mean, you see these people <laughs> on internet forums going, you know, the, the, this such and such rush album is absolute rubbish and whatever. And this is like, I can't imagine having the time or the energy to go around decrying something I don't like. If I don't like it, I'm not just I'm not going to let it into my life, am I? Who are these? It's an odd phenomenon to me. Don't waste time I, on it. My mom, if you ain't got anything nice to say, don't say anything. Yeah. I think that's the best advice, really. Exactly. So if you're watching this and you happen to be somebody that sits on internet forums trolling people, I'm going to get your name and address. I'm going to come around and give you a sharp smack. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've got better things to do. With regard to Kino and It Bites, are the doors closed on those completely? Will there ever be another one? I will never say never. Never say never, but... Um, with It Bites, we have to do another album because we signed a contract. Okay. Uh, with Kino. I mean, yeah, the last one, I'll be perfectly honest with you, was, was, it was very much Kino by name alone. I mean, I, I spent about a sum total of nine hours working with Pete Travis on that album. He had, you know, he, like I say, he's a busy guy and he he, yeah. you know, he was off to New York to do his Edison's Children thing. So he didn't have much time that he could spend on this. Yeah, so We spent about nine hours working on songs together and then he disappeared. John Beck, in all honesty, played on one song, you know. It's not really Kino. And yeah. he was busy playing with Fish at the time and I couldn't tie him down either. And yeah, I'm the guy who's producing the album and mixing the album. So I, I'm the guy responsible for delivering it. And like nobody else seemed to understand that concept, you know, that we, we have a deadline. Yeah. And, you know, and John Beck's very much, well, we'll work on that when I get back from Fish. I'm like, dude, there isn't time. I took this on. I mean, I, 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 if, if we were to do another one, it would, be, it would have to be a lot more involvement from the, you know, from the other two. And I didn't, and with Chris Maitland, you know, it, it's, I kind of felt like, you know, after the, after the way it went with the, with the first album, I thought I kind of, I kind of liked the idea with maybe getting Chris involved again, but then I thought, you know, I've, you know, so, so much water has passed under the bridge and, and to be honest with you, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen the guy and to be honest with you, I, you know, I, the way I, I work with Craig is my favorite way to work, you know, so, and, you know, I think we should, you know, it was me that put the thing together in the first place. So was going, if anyone was up in arms about, oh, he's not involved or whatever, you know, it's, well, it was my band. I'm sorry if that sounds massively egotistical, <laughs> but I was the guy that was asked to put it together. Yeah. No. So, you know, Just being honest again, this is, this is what we're here for. I'm going to, before we get to the, 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 lone, the new Lonely Robot album, one more album I want to talk to you about. Actually, it's an EP. Something that at the time I was uh, doing progressive rock radio show on the internet. A lot of, a lot of my fellow internet DJs, as it were, uh, were talking about this EP by a group called Flash Range that you were involved with. Oh yeah, two thousand nine, and uh, it's called On yeah, the Way. It was yeah, four no, songs. What was the what was the genesis of that? What you know? What was well, that? Can I just be clear about something. Well, this was this was this this is. <laughs> I was tricked. <laughs> no, Andre Dudkin um, is 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 a Russian dude, and he's a big progressive rock fan, and he's a nice guy. Uh, and he wanted to come record in my studio, so he came to record in my studio. And then he said, "You know, can we? Can I? You know, can we get like John Jow and Andy Edwards involved?" And I said, "Well, yeah, if you pay them, I'm sure they'll come along as session musicians." Mm -hmm. And I said, "You know," and I was happy to sing on it for him because he's a nice kid. But then he was like out there promoting it, some new prog rock supergroup. I'm like, no, wait, whoa, dude, no, hang on, no, no, that's not what I said. So it's like this dude, uh, you know, it's it's his thing, and we just guested on it because he's a nice kid. Uh, I actually saw him at the beginning of this year as well. He came back to record a cover of something, you know. Um, so I've, you know, I've got. But to be absolutely clear, that that's 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 andre's thing andre's thing you know it's, it ain't my thing it's nothing it's not and it's not a john mitchell affiliated product okay okay <laughs> it's not canon <laughs> no it's not canon it's somebody else's canon but you know we guessed it on it and i suppose as a curiosity we didn't write, I didn't write any of the music or any of the lyrics mm -hmm. somebody else's thing i just happened to you know I, I he paid me to produce it and to engineer it and then and, and i offered to sing on it for you know because he wanted me to but then let there be no foul play here. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not a mean thing. I have to say, I really like the song Far From Home on that. Travel far away Drive for more than much Except after a cup of coffee Get your friends in touch Come 
it, but I think I think you guys. Yeah, are, I thought I had quite a strong chorus, and I quite like, actually, I had a cold at the time when I sang that, and I quite like the way my voice sounded on that. Song. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Speaking of cover songs that you just were, um, yeah. During the pandemic lockdown, you produced some really excellent covers. I put them out on your YouTube, uh, most notably "Message in a Bottle" by the Police, and my favorite, the uh, the Fish song, "A Gentleman's Excuse Me." Are those ever going to be released or are those just going to in perpetuity be YouTube curiosities? Well, absolutely no point in releasing them now because everybody can hear them for nothing. <laughs> so I don't see the point in doing that. You know, I did, uh, in, in order to launch our little label, White Star Records, I did a, a, a covers EP. But you know what? That's just a means to an end. And I said to Chris Hillman, he goes, why don't we do another one of those things? It says, well, because I'm never going to earn any money from it because they're other people's songs. Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. And I know it seems like I just talk about money, but you know, hey, I'm a working musician. This is, you know, people think, oh yeah, music's such fun. It's such a fun thing. It's like a great hobby. Yeah, it's a great hobby to some people. It's what I rely on for my income. So if something doesn't make sense to me, if it's not going to generate an income, then it's not worth doing, you know. Yeah. Um, I have to think about it in those terms. So yeah, covers. I just did, I literally did them for fun because I love those songs, you know. And yeah. there's no point trying to money. The moment you stick them on YouTube, YouTube recognizes it's not your song. And it's not monetizable. And if you did want to release on an EP, then you have to pay publishing. And you have to get in touch with the public. I think when I did Take Me Home, which is a Phil Collins song, we had to pay like Phil Collins' estate 600 quid just for the privilege of doing it. Oh, so it's like, man. what's that? I'm already not going to make... It's a, way, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a vanity project and nothing more. Yeah. You know? And that's why I didn't. So no, I'm not going to be releasing them anytime soon. Okay. So let's talk about Lonely Robot. You're Five studio albums since 2015, and this new one just about to come out, Model Life. The first thing that strikes me is how different the artwork is from your previous Lonely Robot albums. Uh, What was the thought behind that? Well, because it's really simple. You know, I said, I had a long conversation with Thomas. I said, look, we've called this thing Lonely Robot because you wanted it to appear like it could potentially be construed as a band i mean everybody who knows me knows it's not a band it's just me mm-hmm. going up with monica like fat boy slim or something <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's but you know it, a lot of people um they the, the, the first three albums are a trilogy obviously being three albums and a lot of people uh associate the imagery of the the astronaut you know the the, the spacesuit and the robot and they associated it with those three albums and I said to Thomas, do you not think moving forward we should just, I should maybe go under, like you say, make music under my own name or something because I, I don't want to be, I know progressive rock is famous for, for you know, a lot of uh, people, you know, recreating the past and, and like certain bands in the field of progressive rock keep making the same album again and again and again and <laughs> again. I think they do. I like the idea of, you know, trying to do something a bit different, you know, like even like with Frost, the second album's different to the first album and, and, sure. and Day and Age is different to Falling Satellites and they're all slightly different in that, you know, like Day and Age didn't have any guitar solos on it and, and it's a lot more sort of poppy or 80s with gated drum sounds. As you know, sonically it's different. So and he said, no, well, we've established the brand Lonely Robot. I said, well, people are just going to go, my, and I was right. To a degree, you know, people go, "Where's the astronaut gone?" Well, <laughs> that was the three, the first three albums. That whole thing—that's like they—they they come as a series, you know. Yeah. So I wanted to make it absolutely clear there is no astronaut. So uh, <laughs> it's just me making music under the name of Lonely Robot. So that's why the artwork is—is, is, and I just think it's really simplistic artwork. I really like it. It harks back to the '90s style of um, a lot of the albums I liked in the '90s. The artwork was done by a company called Styler Rouge. Okay. They still make album covers for people, but they were very iconic and very simplistic looking. And I just like the simplicity of a line drawing. And you know, in the wide, wide world of wizards and spaceships and everything else that uh, I, that's synonymous with progressive rock, you know, the uh, spaceships and wizards. I don't really want, that's not really what my music's about. It's not, it's, it's nothing like that. Seems like the most lyrically, the most personal record of the, of the five lonely robot ones. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about the themes you were exploring uh, musically on this? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, 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 sadly, you know, lockdown changed a lot of people's lives in a lot of different ways. And, you know, um, it was, it was, a, it was a horrible time really. I mean, I'm not used to spending, I've been in a relationship, which, which wasn't a perfect relationship for me by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, 
you've known somebody for 20 years and you've gone out with them for 16 years they are part of your life you know and um, that came to an end um, for one reason or another and you know I accept my part of the blame for that um, and yeah it's just very different difficult to um, you know over overcome something like that oh someone's at the door hold on it's a bit of a different doorbell so yeah um, yeah and that was very sad um, and yeah, so you know some of the songs are, are, are about that. Um, mm-hmm. Coming to terms with that, like recalibrating. some other things that you know in recent times the, the whole process of, of split splitting up with somebody after such a length of time and you think well you know if you can overcome that level of change maybe other elements of change need to be addressed as well and something that I've always struggled with is my sort of relationship with my father who was a very successful man you know he was the chairman of the, the shipping line Cunard and as being an adopted kid as I am anybody's well not anybody certain adopted kids are completely well adjusted and balanced but i always very much feel like i have imposter syndrome you know um acutely where i don't belong in any social situation or circumstance i also kind of feel like you know that it was a heavy expectation to you know to live up to my dad's you know expectations as to what i should be in life and he died when i was 12 and um so that's fixed in my mind uh, you know there's some somebody and i didn't really know him that well really because he was never around and as I say, you know, he, 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 he had his own difficulties with alcohol. But again, he was a very successful guy. And when I, you know, and there, there are certain heirlooms lying around now, like, um, like a, a picture of my dad launching the Cunard Princess with Rick Armstrong's mum. And actually, this is when I first met Rick Armstrong, you know. Um, well, certainly that's when I was aware of, of, of him, you know, and then we've become good friends in the last few years. And then, you know, I've come to the you know, conclusion actually in recent times that um, I'm doing myself a massive disservice trying to, you know, I'm, I'm a musician. I was never going to be an academic, um, and which is, I imagine, what my father would have expected. But then I'm an adopted kid, so I don't have his skill set. I don't have, I'm not, my brain's not wired the same way as his was. But then again, you know, you, there is a certain amount of nature and nurture, you know, like there's that brilliant documentary um, on Netflix called The Stranger Next Door, which is about three triplets who were adopted off to different families and and experienced and who had very different upbringings and and how that affected them and it turns out the whole thing was just a big social experiment conducted by an ex-nazi so it's a very very strange documentary it's well worth a watch even if you're not adopted but it resonated with me and my relationship with my mum was brilliant you know she was very encouraging she was an artist she taught art and english in west africa which is where she met my dad he was out there as a civil engineer at the time, helping design hydroelectric dams and railroads. So they had an idyllic start to their relationship. And then, uh, you know, I think later on in life, uh, yeah, he went to, when he got too successful and he had too much pressure on him, that's when the cracks started to appear. Yeah. But I've come to realise in recent times, you know, that's not my baggage and it's not my expectation to fulfil. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a musician. I think I'm a... A decent musician you know i'm uh, you know, i might not be the proggiest of the prog musicians i don't play six million miles an hour uh, that's not that's not what i'm about you know my my thing is writing songs with it that people can find an emotional connection with which yeah. i think is far more important endeavor yeah well you're you know you may be a musician but i wouldn't i would not necessarily say 
you're not an academic. There are very few people that have used the word oubliette in a song before. <laughs> that's true. Well, I'm, you know, I, I do love, obviously that's a French word, which is, uh, um, funny enough. And this is about as geeky as it's going to get. Uh, do you remember, the, you remember the computer game quake? Yes. <laughs> well, there's one of the levels in quake was called the dismal oubliette. And an oubliette was a little, little small room in, in the castle where they would, lock you up and forget about you which oubliette means uh well oublier is is um french for to forget and so uh it means forgotten you know and dismal oubliette was a level in quake so that's where i nicked the title from not from <laughs> being a well-read although i do you know i'm very much a fan of reading as you can probably tell yep you'll see the books behind you yeah i you know i i you know, I, I probably wasted a lot, a lot of time at school, so I make up for it in later life. As you mentioned, recalibrating the the first single from the album, and the second was uh, the digi other digital single that's already been released is Island of Misfit Toys. How much say, if any, do you have in, in what songs get released uh, ahead of the album? Well, I have total say, although it's suggested. And normally, actually, it's quite obvious which ones are going to be released. As I say, you know, I'd like to use the word singles, but they're not really singles. Are they just pre-release tracks? Mm -hmm. uh, and Freddie at the label, he said, well, I said, which ones do you want to do, do as singles? And he said, well, this one, this one, and this one. I'm like, well, that's exactly the ones I would choose as well. So, yeah we're on the same page and um, which kind of means that i you know i think i've more or less done my job in, in if i've chosen the, the songs that i think would people you know some people i mean we made a silly video for island of misfit toys which is it's just like pretending to be a kid's tv show presenter which is absolutely nonsense but <laughs> i had a while of a time making it you talked about your your long days when you work on an album how long did it take you to put this album together start to finish four weeks really that's everything from, from not having a note of music to handing it over. What was the first bit that came to you from this album? Her uh, first bit was the song, uh, model life. She said you look proud of me. So where did it all go wrong? Did we just miss the part where we take care of this model life instead of tearing apart? first thing I recorded was the verse guitar part, which was on the Telecaster with the Kappa Fret 5. Okay. Do you typically write on a guitar or a piano or is it both? I only ever write on this thing here, my trusty. This used to belong to Jem Godfrey. Okay. He brought it along to a photo shoot once. He thought it'd be hilarious to destroy it with an axe. <laughs> of course, this thing is made of the thickest plastic you can imagine and an axe would do absolutely nothing to it. <laughs> And I said, why are you doing that? That's a daft idea. I said, I need, I need a full-length keyboard, MIDI, MIDI controller. Give it to me. And he said, all right, then. And he gave it to me. And it's been on my side ever since. And I've played pretty much everything on that thing, you know. Great. So I don't write on 
guitar normally. I write on piano because it's um, I've played guitar for such a long time that you, you'll find with muscle memory you you go back to and your your hands fall in the same positions. You find yourself playing the same chords a lot of the time. So I find that playing piano, piano, although it's my first instrument, it's you know I find it forces forces you know into different areas and you can play a lot more interesting chords on a piano. It's a lot easier to play more interesting chords on a piano than it is on a guitar. So I find it a lot more uh, fluid a writing tool, as it were. Yeah. Did you play everything on this Lonely Robot album? Uh, I didn't play the drums. Um, I should be clear about this. Craig Blundell has been on tour with Steve Hackett for about six million years now. <laughs> um, so he wasn't available. And I had to make a judgment call. Do I get somebody else in? Uh, and I don't really want to get somebody else in. Um, so what I did was I kind of recycled Craig. I kind of went through all the MIDI on all the Lonely Robot albums. I thought, that section there, that section there, if I flip that around, if I move the kick drum there and stuck it all together, as I made a composite of, of Craig's MIDI DNA. Okay. So a combination of, of sampling your own drummer. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to do that again, though, because I, I, I love the process with Craig. And, you know, I, he, he does suggest things that I wouldn't always think of. I mean, I mean, I don't know what he would have played on this album had he been in the front room, uh, been, been in my front room with his TD50 or whatever it is that he uses, T70 now. I don't know what he would have played. And it's a shame. But as I say, Steve Hackett doesn't seem to ever stop touring. So, uh, uh, Steve Hackett, if you're watching this, go on holiday. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I, I've been waiting to interview some folks in Steve's band, and including Steve, and uh, he's never coming off the road. <laughs> no, and why should he? You know, he's he's he's, he's uh, you know he's he's I guess he's making a lot of money and having a, having. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you, you technically going on tour and you get to travel the world and see all these different cool places. You might as well. It's just the same as going on holiday, but an annoying gig gets gets in the way of it. You know. Yeah, exactly. You, I mean, I look forward to the day. Should <laughs> there come a day, Steve Hackett plays Invisible Touch? It's unlikely, but <laughs> it, is unlikely. it is unlikely. I, I have to say, as as a concert goer, everybody right now is on the road. Maybe except you, but everybody is on the road because after two years of not having gigs, everyone's out there, and I'm going broke buying concert tickets. Well, yeah. <laughs> A nice problem to have. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I've forgotten what it's like to be on the road, and this will be the first arena tour since 2019, I think, was the last time we were out. So we'll see. I mean, I might hate the experience and never want to do it again. It's been nice to, as a, you know, going on, 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 there's a lot of, I don't really like, but I'm a homebody. I don't like being away from home very much. So, mm -hmm. you know. Now, is this UK or all of Europe, or where are you going? Arena. Yeah. All of Europe. All of Europe. Um, and and we're doing some UK dates. I don't know why we keep doing UK dates. No one in the UK likes Arena, so we should stop doing it. But, uh, <laughs> for some reason, we keep doing it. It's like, you know, you play these terrible little places. Uh, I think we're doing some hotel in Scotland that holds about 150 people. It's like, ugh. I mean, I like Scotland to visit, but, you know, um, I've had some hilarious experiences playing in Scotland. The Scottish uh, people have a... A reputation being quite tight-fisted, deep-pocketed. Um, and we went and did a gig there once at a place called the Renfrew Ferry. And I remember the barman, there's five of us in the band and like four crew, and he just brought a tray of four drinks, four pints of beer and two packets of crisps. He goes, there you are, guys, there's your rider. I'm like, well, there's, hang on. No, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're from Scotland watching this, this is your reputation, not mine. <laughs> yeah, you get you gotta you gotta start turning that around yeah <laughs> one song that a couple of songs i want to talk about on this album starlit stardust might be my uh, favorite on the album uh what was what, what was the genesis of that song how did that start and and where where did that journey take you to to completion of that one not that again please not that again
song is a it's kind of a it's a sad song in a way it, um, it, it's about various different things but it's very basically I'm not a very religious person but in my imaginarium were there a heaven it would be it's my imagining that what if I were to you know revisit and meet with my mum again oh, I miss very much um, and in the first verse you know I've had some fairly near-death experiences um, I almost drowned when I was four I fell in the River Thames mm -hmm. uh, and this was <clears> six <throat> in the morning in the middle of winter and I went floating off downstream and my parents because we lived our house backed onto the River Thames so um, I escaped from the house at six in the morning by myself, put my little Wellington boots on, <laughs> fell in uh, for one reason or another and went floating off downstream. And that's my earliest memory. And, you know, it could well, well have been my last memory. Yeah. So that's kind of referenced in the song. And then, you know, the, the day that my mum died is also re referenced in the song. You know, it's very things that kind of, I have a lot of repeated nightmares of those two revisitations of those two events in my life that, that crop up in, in recurring nightmares. Yeah, so yeah. I thought if I wrote a song about um, those experiences and indeed my mum, it might help abate those nightmares. We'll see. I haven't had a nightmare since. Well, that's good. Mm -hmm. I hope it works out for you. That's uh, I find it a, a very beautiful song. The other one is... Very short song, Mandalay. In Mandalay, we lost our way where once we found a home. The garden was in twilight and the weeds were overgrown. Statues were in shadow, the windows cracked and bare. In Mandalay, you face away without a care. And this one is, is like I said, it's it's not even two minutes long. Some people wouldn't even maybe think to put them on the album, but uh, you know, what was that one for you? Well, uh, a friend of mine, Grant, said to me, uh, this is one of your prog baiting songs because it's <laughs> it's about two minutes long. Uh, that was very funny. Well, Mandalay, it's a kind of, I should point out that um, there's a film called Rebecca, Alfred Hitchcock, Laurie Olivier um, it stars in it. Um, and the house that he lives in, and it's spelled differently, Man Mandalay, like Mandalay. Okay. I spelled it like Mandalay as in like in, as in Vegas, you know, the Mandalay, you know, mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, again, it's just a song about, um, it was a, a favorite film of my ex-girlfriends and I really liked it as well. And at the end the house burns down. And so it's a metaphor for, I suppose, the end of a relationship. Okay. Deep stuff, huh? Yeah. No, this is great. John, when, when someone buys this album and they take it home, put it on, turn down the lights, crank it up, listen to it, start to finish. What do you hope they get from that experience? I hope that they, as, as sad as some of the lyrics might be, I hope they find it uplifting and, and and find an emotional connection with it because it was very cathartic for me to make. And of course, not everyone's going to have the same experiences, but I think, you know, there's a resonance there with, we can all relate to. And, and certainly um, if you're in a, in a relationship with somebody, for a very very long time and it's dysfunctional at best and you don't it's difficult when you leave it because you you normalize the behavioral patterns that you become accustomed to and so to, to reset those things is very hard and i you know we've all been in difficult relationships with people at the time so yeah i mean i hope that people can relate to some of it okay the album is uh like i said it's coming out here just really soon, August 26th. It's called A Model Life on Inside Out Music. I appreciate you telling me about this uh, album, a little, little background on, on you and your history. And uh, people can find you at johnmitchellhq.com. That's correct. Okay. Uh, and you're, you're somewhat active on social. Yeah, you can find me ranting about things on Twitter, if you like, or indeed Facebook. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm... I'm 
I'm omnipresent to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time. I hope this does really well for you. I've been enjoying it. And uh, I'm sure your your longtime fans and listeners, uh, whether whether they're listening mostly to Prague or any kind of music, I'm sure we'll, we'll get a lot of enjoyment out of this record. I hope so. At least there's some guitar solos on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Okay, buddy. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.